Well, good morning, church. A Merry Christmas. I hope you had a wonderful day yesterday. And so as we, uh, as we start today, we have a special three-part message for you about Christ, our, pre- our prophet, priest, and king. And so God's word, and from beginning to end, uh, we're going to see Christ, how he fulfills this threefold office and, of prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to begin today by learning about Christ as prophet. So if you can, take your Bibles with me, open them up to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And as you do that, let me begin by asking you a question, church. Which one of us here have ever wanted to know the future? Who here has ever wanted to know the future? That's right, see a hand up there, that's great. Um, you know, for the youth or young adult... Perhaps you've wanted to know uh, what life is going to be like when you're older, uh, if you're going to marry, who you're going to marry, what type of job you're going to have, or maybe for the parent, you wonder what your child is going to be like as they grow older. I know I've wondered that uh, many times about my own kids. Or perhaps going back, let's say, to January 2020, uh, we would have all wondered, or we would all have liked to know what was going to happen in March 2020, so that we could have spent a bit more time with, uh, with our loved ones or prepared a little bit better. But you see, the list is endless. The bottom line is this. All of us have wanted to know the future at some point in our lives about the things that we are most concerned about. And so while God may not have revealed these specific answers to some of these questions we've just asked, he has indeed revealed to us the greatest question or the greatest future, which is his son, Jesus Christ, and all the things he is concerned about in regards to his son. And so today, we're going to learn what a prophet is, why the future or why prophecy matters, and how Jesus Christ himself is our ultimate prophet. And so let's read our first passage for today. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day that we get to hear and learn about the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. While we now focus on Christ as our prophet, help us by the power of your spirit to know more and to learn all about you and your future for us. Teach us through Christ, Lord, and your word for the hope that we receive from the prophecies, Lord, in your word. And lead us and minister us to us, to everyone here in this room and watching online today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, as we read Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 uh, about the incarnation of Christ, I want to answer this question. What is a prophet? What is a prophet? You see, in the scriptures itself, we see that God is the creator. He created all things. And one of the things he created was time itself. Time is a created thing. And God, he is above time. He is outside of time. But for you and I, for us humans, we have a temporal nature. And so much like a fish in the ocean, uh, we are encapsulated within time. We have a physical beginning to our lives and a physical end to our lives here as well. But that is not so with God. God is eternal. In Revelation 1, chapter 8, God says this. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is 
present tense, who was, past tense, and who is to come, future tense, the Almighty. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, God says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So you see, God knows past, present, and future. He sees all things. Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a surprise to God. And prophecy comes from God. And so this passage we read in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it was actually written by a prophet named Isaiah. And he lived and he received direct revelation from God about this Messiah to come who would be conceived by a virgin. And he received this 700 years before Christ was born. 700 years. So you see, the, the scriptures, they spoke for hundreds of years about Christ's entrance into the world. Christmas, wasn't, Christmas didn't just happen. It wasn't just a surprise. God raised up many prophets throughout time proclaiming this Messiah to come. Mary and Joseph, for example, they were devout Jews. And so they would have likely known the scriptures and much that was written about this coming Messiah, a coming Savior. Specifically in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, we see that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and confirmed to him that Mary is indeed a virgin and that her child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, just as Isaiah had foretold 700 years prior. And so a prophet was simply this. A prophet is someone that faithfully taught God's truth to his people. And oftentimes a prophet would receive what would have received direct revelation from God in advance, and then proclaimed it, as Isaiah did. And so a prophecy could simply be defined as something God has said will happen that has not yet occurred. Now this moves us to our next point, which is this. Why does prophecy matter? Why does prophecy matter to us? Well, in the Bible, there are 109 separate and distinct prophecies that were given about Christ's first coming into this world or roughly 300 prophecies if you include repeated prophecies as well. The scriptures or our Bible, it was written over a period of 1,400 years. Most of these authors never met each other, but they all wrote about this unified person of the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, our Lord. And so everything they ever said, everything the prophets ever said came true because God himself is the author of this book. He's the one that inspired every single word. He's the one who is central to all of this because Jesus Christ is the central focus of both the Old and the New Testaments. He is the focus of all scripture and all prophecy. So take a look with me at the screen if you can now. They're going to put up a graphic here. This is a picture by an author named Todd Hampson. It shows just 26 of the 109 messianic prophecies mentioned in scripture. Now, God told us that the Messiah would be born, that he'd be born specifically of a virgin in Bethlehem, that he'd be taken out of Egypt, that he'd be born from the tribe of Judah, that his name would be called Emmanuel, that he'd have a ministry in Galilee. The list goes on, and these are really very specific things. But each and every single one of these prophecies, church, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as you see this chart, you see the prophecy on on the left-hand side there, you see the Old Testament, and then on the right-hand side, you'll see exactly where that was fulfilled in Christ. Now, I want to do an interesting experiment with you. If we take just eight 
just eight of these specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. So that he was born on a virgin, his, birth, his place of birth was named, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, he'd be betrayed with money, his hands and feet would be pierced, he'd, be die, he'd die with criminals, his bones would not be broken on the cross, although he was killed by wicked men and his grave would be associated with a rich man. Here comes the math. Are you, are you ready for this, church? The odds of one person fulfilling these prophecies, just eight of these prophecies, is one out of one with 15 zeros behind it, or one in one quadrillion. I I didn't even know what a quadrillion was before preparing for today, but it is unbelievable that anybody would fulfill. These are just eight of these prophecies, but we had 26 up there, and there was 109 in total. So you see, prophecy matters to us today because it gives us assurance in God's word. It testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ It gives us assurance that what God has said will always come true. You're actually going against the statistics if you don't believe in God's word. And so yesterday when we said Merry Christmas to one another, or even this morning, we are confirming, when we say that, we are confirming the greatest prophecy that the world has ever known. The entrance of the God of the universe in human flesh foretold for hundreds of years to be born, who would be born to eventually die for us and rise again to save our lives, to save us from our sins. And so on that note, if you believe that God is going to usher you into his presence to be with him for eternity, if you believe that you're going to heaven because you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and his blood has covered your sins, then, my friend, you believe in prophecy. That is a future event that you believe based on God's word that's going to happen. So we all believe in prophecy. Now, much of scripture speaks about prophecy, but for now, we're going to move on to to the last part of our message section here, which is how is Christ our prophet? How is Christ our prophet? In John chapter 12, verses 49 to 50, Jesus, during his time on earth, speaks to his impending crucifixion upon the cross, but then he goes on to say this. He says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Or in John chapter 1, we hear this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so you see, this is the point, friends. Jesus himself is the living Word of God, How is Christ our prophet? It's because he is the fulfillment of all prophecy and the very source of prophecy itself. God's word became flesh, God incarnate. He's our ultimate prophet because he has revealed to us everything that the Father desires for us to know. Colossians 1.19 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, Jesus Christ was the epitome of the revelation of God's will to us. He revealed to us God's will in the past. He reveals to us God's will during his time on earth, culminating in his work upon the cross. And he reveals to us God's will for us in the future with him in future glory as well. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus reveals that he is going to be making all things new. The entire universe as we know it right now will one day no longer exist as it does. He will make all things new. 
He continues to give us this future revelation. If you read Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said this to the apostle John. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about Christ's first coming, but Jesus Christ himself spoke about his second coming. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, a day when he himself will make all things new. There's going to be a place, there's going to be a time where there will be no more tears. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more brokenness. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And this is, all, this is the place where we're all going if we trust in him. This is the great hope that we have, the great future that we have to us based on what Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet, has revealed to us. And if Christ revealed all of these prophecies in the past and fulfilled them exactly as he said they would, as we said you saw on that chart there, will he not fulfill the things that he said in the future as well, church? Look, we may not have specific answers to all of our questions in the future in regards to if we will get married or who will marry or what job we'll have or where we'll live and so forth, but we do know the one who holds the future in his hands. We've been given answers to the biggest questions which matter most, which are the future of this world, but also the future of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, which is to be with Jesus Christ forever. So as the worship team comes up now, I want to leave you with one final thought. One pastor said this, everyone else looks at the world and sees things falling apart, especially now in 2021. But for you and I, church, for anyone listening to this message who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who has placed their faith and trust in his word, you see, the world is not falling apart. No, it's not falling apart. All things are actually coming together. All things are actually coming together exactly how God has planned exactly as God said they would. And so take heart today. Don't be discouraged. Everything is exactly coming together as God said it would. It's not falling apart. And so we need to change that paradigm in the way that we live. And we can have that assurance from God's word. Now, Christ is our prophet, but he's much more than that. And so let's worship now. And we'll find out more soon about the other roles that Christ holds. Well, good morning. And uh, I'd like to add my Merry Christmas to you. I, I trust you and your family had a great day celebrating the birth of Christ yesterday. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Of all the questions that you ask on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a yearly basis, the Bible actually brings forth a more important question that we need to be asking. Maybe some of the questions you're asking are, how are your finances How are your kids' grades? Are you up for that promotion? The question the Bible has us asking is, how do sinful men and sinful women stand before a holy and righteous God, perfect in all of his attributes? The answer the Bible gives us is the priesthood. The priesthood is the answer. But if you've read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it doesn't take long to learn that the priesthood has its limitations. 
The Levitical priesthood can't fix our sin problem. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, it just seems lamb after lamb, goat after goat, calf and bull after calf and bull, blood after blood can't fix the sin problem man has. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And we learn that humanity, their sin problem, our sin problem, has a much bigger need, a need for a sacrifice once for all. And we learn in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews uh, talks about the great high priest, Jesus Christ, that yes, the priesthood is the answer to our sin problem, but not the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, uh, as we look at the threefold office of Christ, what an opportunity for us around Christmas time, celebrating the coming birth of Christ, to examine and to meditate upon the person and work of Christ in his threefold office. In fact, one author said, if we are to meditate upon Christmas and so celebrate the incarnation, but not talk about the coming cross, it is like celebrating an acorn, but not celebrating the oak tree that comes after. And we're asking now two questions. What is a priest? And the second question is, how is Jesus our priest? So hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, but uh, I'd actually have you flip back to Hebrews chapter 5 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1. To answer this question, what is a priest? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 tells us. It says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We learn three things about the role of a priest. The first is that for every high priest is chosen from among men, that the priest is to be a representative of the people. And this is one of the amazing things about the incarnation. Jesus had to be a man. If he was going to be our priest, our high priest, he needed to be a man in order to represent us men and women. We learn another thing. It says that the high priest is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. But the second thing we learn is that a priest's work is directed not to other men and women, but directed primarily towards the Lord. And we learn a, th- a third thing, that the priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, that the priest atones for the sins of the people. They bring that spotless lamb or that goat before God, and it is sacrificed. The blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins for the people. We learn two things in the book of Hebrews, the two functions of a priest, and right here we've seen one. The the first is to atone, to atone for sins. The second, we learn later on in the book of Hebrews, is to intercede. Because just as much as the priest goes into the presence of God and brings this uh, sacrifice for sin, that priest goes into the presence of God 
and is interceding, is asking God on behalf of people to forgive them of their sins because of this sacrifice. And this brings us to our second point. How? How is Christ our high priest? Well, hopefully some of us have thought, well, certainly we know how Jesus has, and why Jesus has died for our sins. He died for our sins. That's why he, he died. We see Christ's priestly work in the uh, being our substitute, being that perfect lamb, taking our place on the cross, dying for our sins. But we also see Christ's priestly work in him. He is the one that brings that sacrifice. He brings himself. He offers himself. He's not just being our substitute. He's being our representative. In fact, if someone asked you, were you there when Christ died upon the cross? There's that uh, famous, well-known hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The first answer to that question is no. We were not there. In fact, you should have been there. In fact, it was you that should have been on that cross when the nails went into Christ's hands, when the the crown of thorns was laid upon his head. That should have been you. Christ took your place upon the cross. But in another sense, we can say we were there. Because Christ was our representative there. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 8 says that we have died with Christ. We have died to sin. This is how Christ has acted as our high priest. He has atoned for our sins, that each of us, we can stand before a holy and righteous God. Yes, because of the priesthood, because of the priesthood of Christ and his offer in sacrificing himself. But Christ's priesthood hasn't ended Christ's priesthood hasn't stopped. In fact, Christ's priesthood, the atoning part of redemption is finished. It is complete. The applying of that redemption to his people is continuing, is happening. That Christ, at this moment, is in the presence of the Father, interceding for his people. And this is the second thing I want to highlight about Christ and his priesthood is found in verse Uh, 25 of chapter 8, sorry, chapter 9. Not chapter 9, chapter (laughs) 7. Chapter 7, verse 25, it says this. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ has atoned for our sins, but just as the priests of old would go and offer a sacrifice to the Lord for the forgiveness of sins, we learn later on in this chapter that that the offering that Christ gave in himself was a once and for all. That's why we don't need to sacrifice anymore. That Christ has paid the penalty. It is paid in full. It's done. It's finished. But we learn here there's a part of Christ's priestly work that continues. That he is interceding. He always lives to make intercession for them, them, his people, us. That at this very moment, Christ is in the heavens interceding, asking the Father 
for what? We learn that he is able to save us to the uttermost. That everything that we need for godly living to be saved, Christ is asking the Father. Christ doesn't go to the Father and ask, would you, would you do us a favor? Would you do me a favor, Father, and forgive these sinful people? Christ is able to confidently ask the Father, let us forgive them their sins because of what I have done, not because of what they've done. And he is there and he's asking and he's praying. How comforting is that? I love when people tell me they're praying for me. It's a comforting thing to know that people are praying for me and they say that. Christ, right now, at this moment, is praying. And he's praying for you. It's no coincidence that the longest prayer recorded in the entire New Testament was not prayed by Paul. It wasn't prayed by Peter. It wasn't prayed by any of the apostles. It was prayed by Jesus himself, and it is called the high priestly prayer of Christ, John 17. And in that prayer, we read that Christ, he is pouring himself out to God for those whom he loved, for his disciples at that very moment, but also for us right now that would follow, that would believe in the years and decades and centuries after. This should be a great comfort to us, church. And I'm going to invite the worship team out. I think there are really two responses we should have. The first is, if you are in here and you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You can do that right now, in this moment. Acknowledge that I can't stand before God, perfect and righteous, because I can't do it. My sin prevents me from doing it. But in Christ, in his work, you can be forgiven. You can have this life and you can know that his uh, priestly praying intercession is happening in the heavens for you right now. And the second thing, for those of us that have repented of our sin, have trusted in Christ, that we can rejoice. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who is making intercession for us, and who has faithfully and perfectly and completely atoned for our sin. Christ is our great high priest. He is our great prophet, and he's not just these things. It is an exhaustive We're going to find out more soon. Well, church, today we've heard of Christ as prophet, and not just a prophet, but the fulfillment of all Scripture. Christ, the Word of God made flesh. We have also just heard of Christ as priest, and not just a priest, but the ultimate priest, who would sacrifice himself for the sins of God's people. Now we will be hearing of Christ as king. And what is a king? A king is a ruler of a country or nation. He is the chief sovereign leader of a people and territory. And he rules with authority and power over his jurisdiction. 
also known as his kingdom. And if you would turn to me in Luke chapter 1, we're going to be hearing the angel Gabriel, whom God sent to Mary, telling of a king that she would be conceiving in her womb, though she be a virgin. And this king would be like no other king, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're going to be reading Luke 1, 26 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph and of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is God sending a direct message to Mary through one of his chiefest angels. And she wasn't to be afraid or worry because Gabriel was not coming to pronounce judgment. He was here to pronounce God's favor and his salvation. According to the plan and power of God, Mary would be miraculously conceiving a son in her womb whom God would call Jesus. And this baby would be God's son, the son of the Most High God, who by birth would inherit the rights to rule from the throne of David over every nation in the world. You see, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that a man in his lineage would sit upon the throne and establish God's kingdom on earth forever. And this man was was the boy that Mary was to birth. He is the descendant of, that God spoke of, the anointed one declared to be king over all, and the same man that Isaiah would speak of in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, Isaiah said. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of, his, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is Jesus, God's son, who was destined to rule from the throne of David as king over all. Mary, this boy is the sovereign of the nations. He is the long-awaited Messiah whom Zechariah prophesied would rule justly and show mercy to Israel, saving God's chosen people from their enemies. This is the same Jesus whom the prophet Ezekiel referred to as the Son of Man. The same man who Gabriel is calling the Son of God. And his name, Jesus, means Yahweh is salvation because he would come to save his people 
from their sin. But he was unrecognized by his people. They couldn't recognize that he was king. From birth, actually, we all have been blinded from seeing Christ as king because of our inward corruption. And it's actually our sinful pride that restrains us from calling upon Christ the Savior. In truth, we couldn't recognize him being dead in our sins and trespasses. And neither did many of the people whom he came to rescue. His own people couldn't see that he was their Savior King. Even though Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, he had no beauty, no form, no majesty that would hint at the fact that he was king of the cosmos. The king who revealed himself by performing signs and wonders and announcing that his kingdom had come, that God's kingdom had come, would be ignored. He would be followed for a time, but abandoned After hearing him, many would consider him not a king, but a court jester, leaving his presence offended at what he said. He was not worshipped as he deserved, nor showed reverence for his reign. Instead, he was crowned with thorns by his creation, dying accursed as a criminal under God's wrath. It is this Jesus, the king who was crucified, This same Jesus was laid in a tomb for three days, and on that third day rose from the dead the resurrected king, powerful to save. Death could not have victory over life himself. Our king is the death killer. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? It would not be had over Christ. It is through Christ the king that God disarmed the rulers and authorities of darkness and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. We already know the end of the story, don't we? The serpent who is now a dragon will be slayed by the king of heaven. And are we worthy of this king? No. We've all fallen short of his glory, haven't we? And what do we owe him? everything, and yet we can't buy his favor. Righteous kings collect debts and taxes from their citizens, don't they? But Jesus cancels every record of debt that stood against every citizen of heaven. Every time we have maligned his majesty, every time that we've committed a sin in ignorance or premeditation, All have been freely forgiven by the king's authority at the cost of his own life on the cross. And we three men are here to you today to proclaim this good news that you might recognize Christ, not only as prophet and not only as priest, but also the king of all creation, the son of God incarnate who reigns from all eternity. We have proclaimed to you the truth about Christ to make you aware of his person so that you can acknowledge his reign and offer your allegiance. Are you aware that Christ is king? Are you aware that Christ is king? 
This infant boy in a manger's trough will be born to Mary was at the same time upholding the fabric of reality. The man whom the people of Nazareth chalked up to be no more than the son of a carpenter is the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. There is no king like Christ. No one can compare to his uniqueness or his majesty. Are you aware of this? And will you acknowledge him as king? You see, awareness and acknowledgement are two different things. You can be aware that someone has entered a room and yet not acknowledge their presence, can't you? In the same way, you may acknowledge that Christ is truly God and that he is the king over all the nations and yet still refuse to acknowledge him because of your own desire to lay claim to his throne. In many ways, we all want to be king, don't we? We want to decide when things will happen. We want to decide certain doctors' diagnoses. We want to make sure that our own little kingdoms and our own homes are running the way that we want them to. But we can't lay claim to the throne of Christ. No one sits on that throne but the king of glory. Instead, we ought to humbly acknowledge and respond by worshiping Christ alone as king and turning from our rebellion from his reign. And that's the third question. Are you, are you willing to worship Christ as king? We've talked about being aware that Christ is king. And yes, if you are, are acknowledging that he is king, will you worship him as king is the question. This is the proper response when you see the majesty of God in Christ Jesus because there is none more worthy of worship than Christ, our King. His name is above every name and scripture declares that it is at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And know this, if you don't bow now, you will bow later. Our king will return with a sword in his mouth to strike down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron, as Revelation says. He will inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth where lion will lay down with lamb, where he is our light. And when he has vanquished his enemies, all creation will worship him and call him faithful and true ascribing glory to him forever. Will you worship him now? Or will you seek to flee from him in terror at his second coming? Church, today we've reviewed three things, the threefold offices of Christ. Christ our prophet, the word of God made flesh. Christ our king, high priest of heaven, and sacrifice for sin. Christ our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, let's pray together and worship him. Father, thank you for sending your Son, the very Word of God, made flesh, 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sacrificing yourself, for giving your own life for our sins. Lord, you did not deserve to wear the crown of thorns, but you became sin even though you knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We worship you as king now today, as the king of kings and lord of lords, as our hearts bow before you. Please receive our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.